0: If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're continuing our way through the whole letter that Peter wrote uh, to those who are being persecuted. You know, as we grow up, we hear about superheroes with supernatural abilities. Some who are able to communicate with marine life. Some who have mastered the use of spider webs. Some who have extraordinary strength some who can fly, some who are faster than a speeding bullet. Of course, the last one is a reference to Superman. You know, Superman, um, when you really think about him, I mean, if you know the whole story of Superman, uh, and of course, this sermon is not about Superman. I'm just using it, okay? But anyway, Superman, if you really think about it, he was an alien. He, he was from another planet. He did not seem to fit in. He was a man with the capability within him to do great things, a man who, in spite of all his strengths, still had a weakness, kryptonite. His weakness, of course, caused him personal pain and caused him to not fulfill his purpose. So this morning, what I want to do is I want us to not only, as we kind of look at Superman and, and look at what his strengths are and what his weaknesses are, I want to parallel it this morning to, to who we are in Christ. And, and there seems to be a parallel between the two, between Superman and those who profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So look at the introduction this morning. Peter begins this passage by reminding us that we are not of this world and that we should not be corrupted If you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 11. Peter writes, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. When he says I beg you, he's literally saying I urge you, I I, I plead with you. He's basically saying don't think of yourself as a part of this world. You're you're a pilgrim. You're, You're literally, the translation would be you're an alien. You're an alien. You're not of this world. And then he says, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. And so we see that that Peter here is basically saying, "Hey, hey, you need to remember, you're not of this world. Don't be corrupted by this world. Then look at the rest of it there in the introduction. So in a world marked with gross sin against God and hostility against believers, how should we as followers of Christ, how should we live? So so look at there on your outline. The the supernatural or sanctified war. There's several components to our lives, and and I want us to look at four of those this morning, but the first one there is that supernatural or sanctified war. If you're a born-again Christian, you're in a war. I don't think many of us think of our lives that way, but we are. Within you is that war, whether you're going to decide to honor Christ with your life or make your life about you. If you're a born-again Christian, your war is many times between your flesh and your spirit. And so this morning, as we look at this whole idea of a supernatural war, the first thing I want you to see is the motivation for this war. What, What motivates us to fight this battle? As we as believers face a hostile environment, the pressure to go along in order to get along will increase. But we've been called to be set apart. It's very interesting that the world, now think about it, for us to be accepted by the world, many times we have to line up with the world. We have to conform to the world. We've got to move in the same direction as the world. And what, what we're understanding here from Peter, he is basically saying, hey, you haven't been called to that. You haven't been called to do that. You're not even of this world. Don't be corrupted by the world. But you've been called to live a life that is set apart. Look at verse 11 again. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the, split, the, the, against the soul. It's the whole idea remaining to be set apart. You see, it is a battle to maintain a godly testimony in this world. It's also a battle when it comes to the life that God's called you to live. So where, what does this world look like between the flesh and the spirit? I want you to turn over to Galatians chapter 5. If you'll go to your left a couple of letters, uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. Galatians chapter 5. Hold your place here in 1 Peter 2, but turn there. Now, the, the thing to understand about this is the fact that Paul writes about this battle himself. Paul probably writes more about the battle between the flesh and the spirit than any other author in the scriptures. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians. He, he alludes to it in 2 Corinthians. He, 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 basically, the smaller epistles, he brings up some type of uh, idea about it. But here in Galatians chapter five, he describes this battle that we're in with our own flesh. Look at verse 16. He says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How many of you have heard your parents say something like this? If you're busy doing good, then you can't do bad. How many of you have heard something like that? Yeah, it's true. If you're moving in the direction of what is right, you're moving away from the direction about what is wrong. And so basically what Paul was telling us, he's saying, you know, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit. That word lust, it literally means wars against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh... And these are contrary to one another. That means they're not moving in the same direction so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, it's very interesting Paul says that. He says that you don't do the things that you wish. Do you remember in Romans chapter 7 when Paul goes into this great big dialogue between about the things he wish he'd do that he'd do he finds himself not doing and the things he finds himself not doing he wish he wouldn't do those things? He is describing the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And so, when he says there are those things that I do not wish, I think that speaks a lot to to the credibility of his testimony of following Christ. You see, when we who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we start operating in the realm of the flesh, hopefully there's a spirit of God within you that's telling you this is not the right way to go. This is really what, what is not at my heart's desire. And that's what he's describing here. And then he says in verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And of course, all that means is this. It means that the new life that we have in Christ is not bound by a list of do's and don'ts. It's now bound in a relationship that we have with a loving Father. And and he's basically saying, you need to walk in in that Spirit. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. He's basically saying, if you, if you don't know what they are, let me give you a list. He says, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition. I mean, he goes on and on. And, and he tells these things. And, and he's basically saying, this is what it looks like. If you're operating in the flesh, here's a snapshot of your life. Here's what it looks like. But then he goes on. Many of you know these verses. Verse 22 but the fruit of the Spirit, the opposite of all that, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he says in verse 24, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desire. Notice the word he uses there. He says the word crucified. Here's what you need to understand about your flesh. You can't reason with it. You can't negotiate with it. I'm serious. You try negotiating with the flesh, and I'm telling you who's going to win. The flesh will win every time. If you begin to start to rationalize it and, and see it, I mean, here's why it's so easy. But It's because we live in a world that's trying to conform itself to the flesh. It's open prey. It's basically sitting there. The world is saying, yes, we invite the flesh. And if you want to be one of us, go this way. And the thing that we need to understand as Christians, as believers in Christ, it's the terminology he uses here. He literally says this, put to death the things of the flesh. Put those things to death. You can't negotiate with it. You can't rationalize it. It'll win every time. Now, turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're not turning anywhere else the rest of the morning. So 1 Peter chapter 2, I want to read to you the last part. He, he says this. He says, glorify God. And, oh, excuse me, that's, that's verse 12. Verse 11. Which wars against the soul. Now the soul of man represents three things: his mind, his emotions, and his will. The enemy attacks us, first of all, in our thinking, then our emotions, and then our will. Now think about think about Eve there in the garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Eve in the garden. Uh, think about Eve. You remember Eve? She's sitting there and the serpent comes. Of course, we know that's the enemy. He's pitching himself towards her. And, and, she, and, and basically, he's trying to, to get her to be a disobedient to God. What's the first thing that he does? He appeals to her thinking. He, he, he goes straight there. He appeals to her mind. And from that, because from the mind, he convinces her. And guess what? As total buy-in, her emotions become part of the enticement that is there. And so therefore, her emotions become involved. And guess what? Every time our, our thinking, our mind, and our emotions are involved, guess what? Our will will follow. And so she chose to not obey God. He did the same thing to Jesus in the, in, uh, the wilderness. Do you remember the wilderness? Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, all of a sudden you find Jesus. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. The Bible says the enemy comes to him. He's pitching the same stuff. He's coming the exact same way. He's appealing to his thinking, trying to counter the truth that Jesus knows as truth. He's countering that. And if he can just get him to buy in with his emotions, then his will will follow. But guess what? Jesus didn't buy it, did he? He he overcame it. You know why? Because he chose to put to death those things. And that's what you see. You see, if the enemy can get, get our thinking and emotions to come in line with the world, he, he knows he can get our will to follow. So our challenge is to submit our soul, our mind, our emotions, and our will to the spirit, to the truths of God's word rather than our flesh and the world. So look on your outline. The supernatural war. Is not only, there's not only the motivation for this war, but there's a, the mission of this war. Now think of this, y'all. For a battle to be successful, it needs two things. It needs a strategy, but not only does it need a strategy, it needs a mission. It needs to, it, it, there needs to be something clearly defined that this is what we're after if we go into this battle. I remember this past week looking what's that been going on for several months now uh, looking at the news and finding out that uh, many people are looking at the current administration and saying hey we're going about this thing the wrong way and, and some people are saying hey we don't have a clear strategy when it comes to fighting terrorism and then others are saying hey we don't even know what the mission is we don't even know what the purpose of what we're going after and, and so there's all that debate that's out there but listen it is true that you've got to have the right strategy you've got to know what the strategy is not only that you got to know why am I doing that So here, as it relates to the battle we're fighting, here's the mission. I want you to look at the last part of verse 12. It says, glorify God in the day of the visitation. So why do we battle? Let me just say this. It is to glorify God. We battle to glorify God, but he builds on that premise, and we'll talk about this in just a moment. Listen, let me say this as we look to it. You see, when it comes to this battle, we're not only fighting to keep our testimony clean, but many times we are also battling bad press that we receive from others. How many of you have ever heard, heard people speak, heard of people who have spoke ill of you? All of a sudden you're talking with one person, they're telling you what someone else is saying about you. And you're sitting there scratching your head saying, where did that come from? I don't, I don't know anything about that. Let me tell you one thing. When you choose to live a godly life, when you choose to, to, to live a, a testimony before the Lord and, you're, and that's being exercised out in the workplace or at school or wherever you find yourself, do you realize that that is a threat to those who are not living that way? Did you know that? It really is. Matter of fact, and we're going to look at this later in a couple of weeks from now, matter of fact, the life that you live, when you live a life that's sold out to God, that's surrendered to Him, guess what? Your life becomes a rebuke to the life of those who are not living that way. And so here's what will happen. If they can't find the goods on you, and by the way, if you let someone know you're a believer in Jesus Christ, they're going to watch you. They're just waiting for you to mess up. Because they want to use that against you. Because they want to feel better about where they stand. Because right now, your life is a rebuke to them. But not only that, if they can't find something that they can pin on you, they start making stuff up. They do. I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen. You, guess what you'll find in Scripture? All through Scripture, you're going to find out that the reason people were successful in trying to attempt to crucify Jesus is, well, part of it, is, it is, was some of the things he said. But guess what? There are people who are making stuff up. The reason many of the disciples died was because people were making stuff up. They couldn't find anything against them, so they started making stuff up. Got the attention of the government, and guess what? They were executed. But that's what people do. That's what the world does. If you tell others that you're a follower, you're going to be watched. Even though you momentarily may be falsely accused, the strategy of godly living will succeed. Look at verse 12. He says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. When he, the word Gentiles here, most of the time in Scripture, it's a reference. You, of course, you have Jews, okay? And then the rest of the people are Gentiles. You have Jews and Gentiles. In the context this is written, this is talking about, when it refers to Gentiles, it's talking about unbelievers, it's talking about those who have not found the truth in Christ. And so here's what he says. Have your conduct honorable among those who are lost, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let me just say this. The day of visitation is a big, is going to be a big day in the future. Let me tell you about the day of visitation. The day of visitation of the Lord means this. It means judgment is coming. It is when God comes to, to fix everything all the misunderstandings all the evil that had been done he is going to settle the score once and for all so some of you who are being persecuted where you are right now because you testify and profess Christ as your Lord and Savior guess what there's going to come a day of reckoning when it's all going to be made right all going to be right made right we see it right here in this text next the supernatural witness The object of this witness. Of course, the object of the witness is the Lord. Now, as I read these next verses, now this is going to blow your mind, but as I read these next verses, I want you to remember to whom Paul is writing, or excuse me, Peter is writing. He is writing to those who are persecuted by the government. He is writing to those who many will go to trial, be found guilty, and possibly executed. All this because of their testimony of following Christ. So when we read these next verses, Peter is writing to those people. Look at what he says here in verse 13. He says, therefore. Now the word therefore, of course, is making reference to what's already been said. He said, you're you're not of this world. You're an alien. You need to walk like it. Don't let the world corrupt you. Uh, Oh yeah, by the way, there's gonna be people gonna speak ill of you. He says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man For the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. What he's saying here is this. When God established man, he actually also ordained the government to do what it does. The government is to provide justice. That, that's that's what the government is supposed to do now we've had governments who have been very corrupt over the the generations of man over the history of man we've seen that we pointed out we've seen where they've been very unjust they've gone after people and that's what was taking place in the first century but yet Peter is reminding them, listen, you look up to there's an authority structure that is over you now think about that as you as you as as you look at this now so not only do we see the object of this witness the objective of this witness now this is where it gets tough to understand look at verse 15 he says if you recognize that authority especially the authority of king and of the king and those who are over you he says verse 15 verse 15 for this is the will of god that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men and then he says this as free yet not using liberty as a cloak. He's speaking to Christians here at this point. He says, you're free, but you're not using liberty as a cloak. That means a covering for evil doing or for vice, but as bondservants of God. Now, what he's saying here in verse 16 is this. Don't let others' actions give you an excuse to do evil or to be bitter. Now, let me just say this. (laughs) The Bible promises If you've professed Christ and you live the life He's called you to live and you're salt and light to this world, the Bible promises, it tells you, you're going to suffer persecution. Not everybody's going to like it. They're going to come after you. And the thing that we need to understand here is what he says in verse 16. He says, don't let that be an excuse for you to do evil. Don't let that be an excuse for you to become bitter. You stay above it. So look on your outline. The objective of the witness, of this witness is to bring light. The whole reason we need to stay above all that is because there's a higher calling on our lives. We don't need to get mixed up in, in fleshly pursuits. We, don't need, we need to realize we're not of this world. We need to realize there's a clear mandate that's placed upon us. We are to be set apart. But not only that, we need to bring light to those who are lost. Look at what he said. Look at the verse here on the screen. Luke 9, 23. Jesus once said this. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. How? Daily and follow me. Let me tell you one thing about our selfish, fleshly nature. Every day we got to wake up with the idea of putting it to death. Because if we don't, we're going to fall right into the trap of the enemy. If we don't, we're going to fulfill and conform to this world. And we literally have to make a distinction to, 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 to crucify the flesh. but that's what Jesus says, "If you're going to follow me, it requires this." So this verse implies that out of our life, that, excuse me, that our life is not about us, it's not about our personal comforts, it's not about our rights. It is a life that makes Jesus known. Now let me tell you one thing about the good old United States. We are all about personal rights, aren't we? There's not hardly any, any day that you turn on the news that you're not hearing about what our rights are as Americans. And how many of you are grateful for our rights? I'm very grateful for our rights. But did you know that we're, we really don't deserve any, any rights? We, we really don't. So, I think so many times, well, we deserve. We're Americans, and therefore we're justified, and we have all these rights. Guess what? There's a higher calling on our lives than us having rights. Did you know that? That's hard to get your mind around. Listen, from God's perspective, the only thing that matters to him about our life is this: that we glorify Him and that we bring light to darkness, that we demonstrate a life that before the darkness in which men live and women live, that we live such a light, uh, uh, we live in such a way that our light sheds into their darkness. That is the life that we've been called to. So the secret to being the witness we are called to be is found in verse 17. Uh, John MacArthur says this. He says verse 17 is what he calls citizenship theology. And look at verse 17. It says, honor all people, love the brotherhood. When it speaks of brotherhood, love uh, those who profess Christ also. Fear God, have a healthy respect of God. Fear him. Honor the king. Well, he says honor the king. Think about who he's writing to. You mean I've got to honor someone that's trying to possibly execute me? It's what you're seeing here. The objective of this witness. you see, with this in mind, our duty as Christians is to continue is to continue faithfully to be a witness. Even when we're misunderstood, even when we are ridiculed, even when we are the object in which evil is directed, we must not give in to the taunts, nor should we react with anger and hostility. We must be what Jesus has saved us to be and called us to be. And that is that we are to bring light into darkness. We are to win others over by our witness and our testimony. Listen, if you say, okay, what is God's perspective on my life? As I've already said, to glorify him and to bring others to him. That's what it's all about. Next, the supernatural sanctified will. The reason for obeying his will, according to verse 13, we are to obey his will for God's sake. When it says God's sake or for the Lord's sake, it's speaking for his purpose. That's the reason we obey it. We do not submit to evil leaders because it is convenient or easy. We do it for the Lord's sake. We do it for his plan. Jesus had power. Think about this. The Bible says Jesus had the power to call down thousands of angels and be removed from the cross. But he didn't. He lived for God's will and not his own. He fulfilled the purpose of his life. He died to bring salvation to us. Look at verse 18. Look at what it says. It goes a step further. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. That means respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. When he says harsh, it can also mean the unreasonable. And really, this is a picture of the employer-employee relationship. Don't raise your hand because they may be in here, I don't know. But how many of you have ever had to work for an unreasonable boss? Unreasonable, harsh, made no sense some things that were coming out of his mouth or her mouth. I mean, you're there and and you're sitting there and you're trying to get your mind around all that. And and he says these things. And to people who are being persecuted, verse 19, he says, for this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering, and and, uh, grief, suffering wrongfully. Now, here's what is interesting about this. That phrase commendable, when it says it's commendable, it means this. It literally means it pleases God. Now, this is is where it gets tough to hear sometimes you won't hear this in prosperity preaching sometimes it pleases god for us to suffer how many of you find that hard to hear that's exactly what this verse is saying you know why? Because he knows there's a greater good. He knows there's something beyond the life that we're living. He knows there's something out there that he's up to, that he's working, and he he's working through these things. When it says conscious towards God in verse 19, it's talking about the ability to see God working in and through our lives. Listen, there's many times that I'm sent emails or get calls or someone will say, hey, can we go to lunch sometime? And and here's what the gist of the conversations are many times. I just want to tell you that I see God working in my life more right now than any other time in my life. And many times I'll ask the question, why do you think that is? Do you know that most of the time this all found in the context of the fact that they were struggling with something? Did you know this always sometimes when they were mistreated when they didn't understand what was happening and all of a sudden it's like God just came in on a white horse and all of a sudden they begin to see, oh, this is what all that's about. I see now. Yeah, it was tough going through it, but I see what God was up to. Listen to this. Therefore, we may suffer to bring salvation to others, but let me just tell you this. God can do a lot with a surrendered life. I want you to, under, look. there's two examples that we find. I'm going to put them on the screen. you remember when Jesus was on the cross? There was a lot that went on while he was on the cross. But there's two stories that came out. First of all, the thief on the cross. How many of you remember the, the fact that Jesus was hung between two thieves? There was seemed to be a good thief and a bad thief, okay? Or one that had self-interest and others' interest. Look, look, look at what it says. Then one of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed Jesus saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. He made that all about himself. But the other criminal answering, rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. You know what that thief was saying? He was looking at the other one and he was saying, listen, we deserve what we're getting here right now. But then he goes further. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The next scene we see there is that of a Roman centurion. And here's what it says. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Now think about it. He could have come off that cross anytime he wanted to. But love compelled him to stay. You've heard that before. But what was really interesting about it is before he even got off the cross, there were two people in which light was brought into the darkness of the world. And we see the Roman centurion who acknowledged him for who he is and also that thief on the cross. So light had come where there was darkness. Jesus modeled what our lives should look like, even in the midst of the suffering and the wrongdoing that's been done to us. Next, the supernatural sanctified will. We see the reward for obeying his will. Now think of this, y'all. One day, the suffering we go through here will pale in insignificance compared to the glory we will share with our Lord. One day, listen, he is coming to commend those who stood in the time of trial and tribulation. He is going to commend those who refrained from sinful desires, those who submitted themselves to authority, even when that authority was not righteous. Look at verse 20. It says, for what credit is is it if, if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. He's basically saying there's some of you who are being persecuted and suffering because, because of something you've done yourself. He says you need to take it patiently. You need to accept that that's part of what comes with the consequences of what you're doing. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. This, is, this finds favor with God. Because He knows the potential that could come from what you're doing. You see, the reward for obeying God's will is that in the end, we get to spend eternity with Him. Next, the supernatural walk. We see the supernatural walk. And the first thing we see is the path of the walk. What does the path look like? Look at verse 21. It says for this you were called because Christ also suffered for us. Leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who when he was rivaled did not rival in return. When he suffered he did not threaten but committed himself to him to God who judges righteously. Now the word example there. Uh, the word translated example, in verse 21, many commentators say is really a weak word when it comes to the actual translation. A better translation would be, and some of your translations have it, the word would be pattern. That he patterned something for us. It's the picture that we get uh, with, with sometimes with our kindergartners. This past week, I was working with my grandson and helping him do some of his homework. Now, in kindergarten, I'm very capable of helping with homework. I feel very confident in what I'm doing, and it's just a pleasant experience. I don't know about you. But anyway, he brought home, he on, on the way home from school, it was the first time I had a chance to pick him up from school, and I went, and man, I tell you. Anyway, <laughs> he, he gets in the car. He says, Guess what, Granddaddy? I said, What? I learned how to write the number four. I mean, we, we had a celebration. I mean, it was just great. I mean, he was excited. I was excited. And, and, and I said, well, tell me a little bit about four. Well, you got to go and do like this and you kind of do like that. I mean, he was doing something. I was driving while I was doing it. But anyway, uh, but, but what's interesting is we got home and my wife said, hey, before we take him to the fair, you need to help Will with his homework. Of course, I'm sitting there like, oh, man. You know, <laughs> of course, when I told Will, guess what? He said, oh, man. But anyway, we sit down and, and, and I looked at this and I had already studied what this meant. And, and that sheet of paper there, how many of you remember this? In kindergarten, you had the privilege of connecting the dotted line. You, you remember that? To do a four, you had to start here. It tells you exactly what to do. It not only shows you what to do, it tells you what order you do it in. How many of you remember that? You got the one, it tells you to go to that line. You got the two, it tells you to go across that line. Three, you go way down through that line. And we were sitting there and, 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 of course, I had to help him. I'm sure when the teacher looks at this, like, man, you did a good job there, Will. That was granddaddy. But anyway, <laughs> but here's, here's the picture we need to understand. It's the same thing. There, there was, there, for our lives, Jesus lived a life in which we can trace the dotted line. We can find the truth in his scripture by just, we know exactly the order that it takes. And that's what you're seeing here. That is a picture of what you have here in this text. Jesus who gave himself to us in selfless, sacrificial and unconditional love is the pattern that we are to follow as we live before others. How many of you remember the phrase years ago, what would Jesus do? Remember many of us got the bracelets to remind us. You know, oh, we got a big decision. Oh, let me look at my bracelet. What would you, okay, what would Jesus do? You remember that? Yeah, some of you, no, I was too cool for that. But anyway, maybe you weren't born yet for all I know. But anyway, (laughs) that's what was big years ago. But did you know that the life we're called to live and what we find here in this text right here is bigger than that? It's not just looking at a situation and sizing it up and saying, oh, I think this is what Jesus would do. That is a beautiful picture. I like that. But it's really more than that. When he says the pattern, he's talking about this is exactly what Jesus did. And if you will surrender your life to him, submit to him as your Lord, and you follow him wholeheartedly, guess what? Your life would just naturally flow in that direction because the Holy Spirit is leading you. It's not a matter of taking a step back and saying, I wonder what Jesus would do. Your life is already moving in that direction. And that's the picture that we have here In this text, you see, Jesus modeled the life we need to live here in this world. While on the cross, He did not retaliate, He did not make threats, He entrusted His case to the one who will judge justly. And the same thing, we need to do the same thing. You know, so many times, here's what we think I'm with you. We've all responded this way before. Someone does us wrong. Tell you one thing, I'm getting them. I am getting them. It's going to happen. We even go home and we make the declaration to our family. They're going to get it. How dare them do this to me? That's not the picture that we see of Jesus hanging on the cross. Not the picture. What's interesting about all that is the fact that what we need to do is just like what Jesus is going to. He's going to allow his father to judge justly. So now here's what we need to do. We need to be thinking, oh, no, we're not going to handle it. We're not going to do it. We're going to get God to get them. So we go home and we say, God, I understand. You tell me I can't respond. I can't retaliate. Get them. That's just a spiritual way of looking at it. It's the same thing. But we're trusting him to do something. Someone has said this. I think this is a great quote. The path or pattern Jesus left us was a serving life, a suffering life, and a life of power under instead of power over. You see, we live in a world in which people want the power over. We are called to live a power under. Next, the supernatural walk, the path of the walk. But secondly, the provision of the walk. You see, Peter concludes these thoughts by writing that Jesus' life though by outsiders looked like defeat and failure, was really the most successful and triumphant life ever lived because he perfectly followed the will of the Father. Look at verse 24. Who himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might might live for righteousness by whose stripes or wounds you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What he's saying here is his suffering and death provided our forgiveness and our redemption. Made possible for our new life, which in return, listen, gives us a victorious life. Now, because of God's plan fulfilled by Jesus, there are benefits with salvation. We should should live a life that benefits others that they may come to salvation no matter what they do to us. Listen to this story. I'm gonna close with this story. I want you to listen to the prayer of a Korean pastor named Yang won Soon. Here, here's his prayer. Listen closely. And I thank God that he has given me the love to seek, to convert, and adopt as my son, the one who killed my two sons. You see, the missionary Edmund Clowney notes that these were the words of, of the Korean pastor. You see, the year was 1948. The place was the town of uh, soon A band of communists had taken control of the town for a brief period. While they had control, Pastor Soon's two oldest boys were executed. Their names were Matthew and John. They died as martyrs, calling on their persecutors persecutors to have faith in Jesus. When the communists were driven out of Chainson, a young man of the village was identified as the one who had fired the murderous shots. His execution was ordered. Pastor Son, father of the two murdered sons, requested that the charges be dropped, and not only that, and that Che Son be released into his custody for adoption. He he became, listen, this this murderer became the son of the pastor and a believer in Jesus Christ, all because of that action. Can you, can you imagine something like that? Someone kills. You watch it take place. They kill your sons, your two sons who who live for God. For many of us, we'd be mad at God at that moment and possibly would even turn our back on him, but he embraced God and all that God had, he had the proper perspective. I believe he was living out exactly what we've read here this morning. And he saw that his life was on a grander scale than what he could see and what his com- emotions would feel and how he would feel about what's going on in his life. And all of a sudden he looks and the man was brought to trial and he stands there and he says, I ask that the charges be dropped. And not only that, I want to adopt him as my own. Can you imagine that? That blows my mind. I don't know if I could do that. But y'all, that is the life that we've been called to live. Here's the application this morning. Is this supernatural sanctified reality evident in your life? What is the condition of your testimony before others? If I were to go to where you work or go to where you go to school. And I were to ask what do you think of such and such? Would they say something like this? Well, I'll tell you one thing. They're, they're, just, they're, they're just good. He's a good guy. Man, the jokes we tell around here, he just falls right in line. And, and I'm telling you, he, he's even got better jokes than we do. He just loves life. He just falls right in line with everything that we do. He is such a good guy. Or would it be something like this? You know something? That guy comes at life a little differently. That, that guy, he, um, you know, it, it's I don't see life quite the way he sees life. And, and it's it's very interesting that that sometimes I'm kind of threatened by the life he lives. It's almost like he's judging me, but he never judges me. It's just something about the way he lives his life. And I'm going to tell you, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Do you know what that is? That is light encountering darkness. That is the life God's called us to live. Third question. Does, it get, does your testimony get the attention of others with the possibility of introducing them to Christ? Y'all, that's what we've been called to do, to glorify God and to bring others to him, to bring light into darkness. Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just thank you for your word this morning and thank you for this challenge. Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, they've never encountered you in the way that, that they can look to you as someone who can save them from their sins and, and bring them into a right relationship with you, Father, I just pray today will be the day that they take a step into this aisle and come and just seek to know who you are this morning. Father, maybe there's a Christian that's here today, and maybe, maybe they're going through a very difficult time in their life, and maybe they're looking at it, and they're, they're, they're hurt by it, they're wounded by it, And Lord, maybe they're even bitter. Lord, help them to realize that there may be a higher call in their life or help them to realize that there is a higher call in their life. And Father, they need to see it from your perspective what they're dealing with. Father, I just pray you'll have your way in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Getting ready to sing a hymn of invitation. invitation. Myself and two other pastors will be here at the front. We just ask you to do what God's calling you to do. Would you sing with us this morning?